H.R. McMaster served as a U.S. Army officer for 34 years, including deployments in Iraq and Afghanistan, before retiring as a Lieutenant General in June 2018. He then served as the White House National Security Advisor. Now a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution, he also serves as Chairman of the Board of Advisors at FDD's Center of Military and Political Power. At a challenging and dangerous time for the United States, a time when we are threatened by a motley crew of rivals, adversaries, and sworn enemies, I'm pleased he could join us today. I'm Cliff May, and you're listening to Foreign Policy. Either the U.S. enforces some rules in the world, or there are no Every U.S. president has tried to diminish tension with Russia, has reached out to the Russians. Most of those have failed, especially when Vladimir Putin became the leader. They're still killing guys who joined the Jihad in 1979 or 1980 or 1981 who are still in the we game. We are seeing a ramp up in North Korean cyber capabilities over the last decade. Iran is basically putting forth these claims of nuclear innocence that they are doing nothing wrong, that there are no violations, and that's just factually not correct. I am fearful for what happens to Turkey now. If you thought that it was dangerous that a coup might have toppled this democracy, think about what this very autocratic man might do. All right, let's do a quick tour of the world. Afghanistan, after 17 years, we haven't solved that puzzle. China, its rulers have been gaining on us militarily. If there were a crisis over Taiwan or the South China Sea tomorrow, I'm not certain we easily prevail. Russia, Putin isn't commander-in-chief of a superpower, but he knows how to use the military he has to achieve his objectives. The Islamic Republic of Iran, not contained. Non-state jihadi groups proliferating. North Korea, progress has been modest as best as we record this today. So it's a lot to deal with, isn't it? Well, it is. And what's important to understand is that we are in a very competitive environment from a national security and foreign policy perspective. And and I, I think in large measure, we're behind. And we're behind because I think we're at the end of the beginning of a new era. And the assumptions on which our foreign policy and national security strategy had been based for several administrations were fundamentally flawed. We have a national defense strategy and a national security strategy. You had a lot to do with those. I have to say they read pretty well, but getting that down on paper, that's an important component of the exercise, but it's by no means mission accomplished. Right. It's not. It's it's about implementation. But first, you do have to have the ideas right. And what we were able to do with a fresh perspective, looking at the greatest challenges to national and international security, is to recognize the main arenas of competition where our vital interests were at stake. And what we found is that we were largely absent from many of those arenas. And really, you mentioned all of those. They involve hostile states that are actively operating against the United States and developing the most destructive capabilities on Earth. And this is North Korea and Iran fall into that category. You also have the return of great power or geostrategic competition, mainly centered on the Eurasian landmass. You remember the, you know, when when, uh, Russia invaded Ukraine, Secretary Kerry said something like, well, that was so 19th century. Under the assumption that Things like this don't happen anymore. But we have to re-enter the arena of geostrategic competition. And then we still have very potent transnational threats, many of which now have access to capabilities previously associated only with nation states. So 
the, the main conclusion we, <laughs> we came to is it, we're behind because we've left the arena in large measure. We need to compete once again and regain, in particular, our strategic competence, our ability to think clearly about these problem sets and then integrate all of our elements of power, the tremendous resources and, uh, that we have as United States, along with those of our like-minded partners and allies. I want to come back to what John Kerry had to say about the 19th century behavior of President Putin. That shows he believes, and a lot of people do, I, I think, that the will to power, the, the urge to conquer, which has been the motivation of major players throughout history, somehow ended at some point. And now we all want to sit together and sing Kumbaya and talk about how we can boost our 401ks and build the best darn health care system the world has ever seen. And yet the motivations of Napoleon, Alexander the Great, Genghis Khan, I'm not sure those have been purged from the human psyche. That's, that's right. There's, there's, a, there's a great short monograph called Can War Be Eliminated by Christopher Coker. The short answer is no. And, 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 the, and the reason is that this is a competition for power, resources, survival oftentimes that drives violence. Uh, I think we in large measure overlook what are the real causes of competition broadly, but armed conflict in particular? And we neglect continuities in the nature of war, the technology, that the latest developments from a political perspective aren't going to really fundamentally change. I think a lot of people believe that peace is what's natural. War is not. It's kind of like we think health is what's natural. Getting sick is not. That's the aberration. I wonder if that's not entirely wrong. I wonder if in reading history properly— it doesn't become clear that peace is very difficult to achieve, very difficult to sustain, and that throughout all of history, the 20th century was bloodier than the 19th, the 19th was bloodier than the 18th, that war is actually the natural state of mankind unless you put into play a lot of different factors, one of which is to have a strong nation keeping the peace. That gets back to the idea of a, a Pax Romana, a Pax Britannica, a Pax Americana. Unless you have that situation, peace is not the natural state of humankind. We, you have to work hard at peace, right? And, and, and that has to do with competitions, especially today, with these revisionist powers on the Eurasian landmass. This is Russia and China, who are acting against us in a very sustained and sophisticated manner. And what China and Russia are trying to do is collapse the international political, economic, uh, order and replace it in a new order that's more consistent with, with their objectives. Russia wants to regain national greatness. China wants to achieve national rejuvenation. And they, in large measure, want to do it at our expense. And when I say our expense, it's the free and open societies of the world. And that's, the, the I think, a very important competition. And it is so 19th century, but sadly, it's also so 21st century. I did a podcast not long ago with Andrew Roberts, who has a, a new and really quite a wonderful tome on Winston Churchill. And in reading it, part of what's remarkable is the period between World War I and what became World War II. In Britain and France, there was this idea that there was no longer a need for war. In Britain and in France, people said, we don't need to rearm. And Winston Churchill was trying to tell people in the 1930s, but Germany is rearming. Germany intends to have military superiority, and if we wait to respond until Germany has military superiority, 
we're going to be in trouble. But that's, of course, exactly what happened. It's why Churchill called World War II the most avoidable war, because all you had to do was stop Hitler before he gained military superiority. But Churchill couldn't make that case successfully in Britain, and certainly the case was not made successfully in France. That's right. And and really, it, it highlights the fact that war and competition short of war is in large measure, as Klaus would say, a contest of wills. And so you have to generate the will to do what's necessary to prevent war and, if necessary, uh, to, to prevail in war. And European society you was know, devastated by the cost of, of World War One. There's a great literature out there about how, you know, these these key countries, France and the UK in particular. In France, the book is, is called Strange Defeat, which is an excellent an exposition of of the the cultural and social response to the tremendous cost of World War One and the belief that they just could never do it again. I mean, they just didn't want to go through it again. The Germans did, obviously. And so, will is an important component, and in a democracy. Our ability to, to deter war, our ability to, to win once we engage in war is based on the people's recognition that it's necessary to commit the resources and the effort and demand the leadership necessary to do those two things, to deter and, if necessary, defeat our enemies. This is a very important point worth stressing. If you build your military power in times of peace to the extent that you can deter your enemies and adversaries, where where they don't think that challenging you is a good idea, at least if they're rational, then you can avoid conflict. If you don't, if you look weak, as Britain did and as France did to Germany, that's provocative. That increases, not decreases, the possibility that you will end up in a very bloody conflict. And the people who say, let's let's pare down our military, we want a nation build at home, we have so many good uses for the money— they don't understand that they're increasing, not decreasing, the chances of a bloody and, and much more costly conflict in the future. I think that's, that's exactly right. There are two main ways to deter conflict. One is by the threat of punitive action later, and the other is, is as Thomas Schelling pointed out in the 1960s, deterrence by denial convincing your enemy that that enemy or potential enemy, your adversary, that they cannot accomplish their objectives through the use of force. And and oftentimes the only way to do that is with very capable armed forces uh, that combine capabilities across land, sea, aerospace domains, and now increasingly cyberspace and in, in space as well. You wrote a very insightful book, Dereliction of Duty, which concerns Vietnam and what went wrong in Vietnam. Have you thought about the possibility of writing another volume, a sequel on Afghanistan, and what's gone wrong there? Because as I see it, and feel free to argue with me, after 17 years, we're not winning. And the idea that we're engaged in productive peace negotiations with the Taliban, I just find that hard to believe. Well, it's trite to say this, right? But but you mentioned the 17-year length of the war. It hasn't been a 17-year campaign. It's been a one-year campaign 17 times. Uh-huh. And, and our strategy has been based on some fundamentally flawed assumptions about the nature of that conflict. So we had a very successful campaign in 2001 that unseated the Taliban regime in sort of record time with very uh, low losses. And this was our very courageous intelligence professionals and, as professionals and special forces operators working with American air power and working with Mujahideen-era militias who are in, in opposition to the Taliban regime. They unseat the regime, but we didn't give adequate attention to consolidating those military gains into a sustainable political outcome. And so 
what these militias do is they morph into criminalized patronage networks that are actually stakeholders in the weakness of the state mm-hmm. because it's the weakness of the state that give them freedom of action and the ability to build up their power in advance of a post-U.S. Afghanistan. And by the way, we were telling them, hey, we're leaving, we're leaving. And so it encouraged in them a short-term maximization of gains mentality. Also, thank goodness for the great work that you do at FDD and what the Long War Journal does and and publishes. We, We see some of the other flaws associated with our thinking about Afghanistan, that there might be a line, you know, between Al Qaeda and these related groups and the Taliban, for example. Or that the role of the Pakistani army and, and its intelligence arm, the ISI, might be relatively benign. That's not the case. And so the Taliban was able to regenerate. They were able to take advantage of state weakness. And we've been in this cycle now where when we do commit the resources necessary, we announce at the same time our timetable to withdraw. And so uh, I thought that the president really broke that. President Trump did last year. Uh, in this great speech he gave, I think it was in August of 2017, where he addressed some of the fundamental flaws in our strategy, which had been this idea that you could tell your enemy exactly the amount of troops you had. And by the way, under the, the Obama administration, the Taliban was no longer a declared enemy. So those who were killing our soldiers, those who were committing mass murder of Afghans in cities with, with, with car bombs, you know, really weren't even a declared enemy. And so talk about, you know, an unwise way to fight a war, not recognizing that war is an extension of politics, as Klaus said. War is human and war is uncertain because your enemy has a say in the future course. You can't announce years in advance exactly what you're going to do. And then, of course, fundamentally, war is a contest of will. So if you say, hey, I'd like to negotiate an agreement. Oh, by the way, I'm leaving. How does that work? It doesn't work. And and so really... Getting the outcome we need means convincing our enemies in there, the Taliban, the al-Qaeda-related forces, the Pakistan's uh, are, are the, uh, the arm of the, of the Pakistani army, the ISI, that they cannot accomplish their objectives through violence. Then, then you can maybe get a negotiated agreement. If you remember in the present speech in 2000, uh, 2017, he said, well, maybe at some point in the future we might talk with the Taliban. And so what, what's happened in recent months is a bit of a reversal of that, which I think is going to, to hamstring us and make it much more difficult to get to a sustainable outcome. I think what we have to do, though, is recognize what is at stake. What is at stake is that you could have in Afghanistan the collapse of, of governance in huge parts of the country, which would then give the Taliban what really we saw ISIS have, mm-hmm. control mm-hmm. of large swaths of territory that gives them the resources it gives them the revenue in connection with the opium trade, mm. and and it gives them you know the, the the land to train and plan and prepare. And you know what? This isn't an academic scenario. This is what resulted in the mass murder of over three thousand Americans and others on September eleventh, two thousand and one. So the stakes are high, and we should also talk more about our enemy. What drives me crazy, Cliff, is when I read a story about a mass murder attack. And it's written in the passive voice. Mm-hmm. A car bomb was detonated. Well, gee, who did who detonated that? The Taliban, with the support of Al Qaeda groups, because they overlap in the Haqqani network, which is part of this problem, and in a safe haven and support base that is provided to them by the the ISI, the the, the intelligence arm of the Pakistani army. 
And what we ought to do is when people say, well, you know, we should come up with a deal to power share with the Taliban. Okay, what does that look like? Does that look like mass executions in the stadium every other Saturday? Does that look like every other girl's school is bulldozed? Right? So let's think about the nature of our enemy. What is at stake? And then in our democracy, we can determine that we need a sustained effort to have what we had there, 14,000 troops, a cost of, I think, it was getting below $20 billion a year and could go down more with more mm-hmm. contributions from some of our allies and partners. That is sustainable. If you, if that is something that, that a country like the United States – the point I guess I would like to make on this, on this is there are no short-term solutions to long-term problems. And, and if you take a short-term approach to a long-term problem, you're going to have 17 years of indecisiveness. You know, you have people on the right and on the left talking about endless wars. They don't like that. So we're going to end these endless wars. They don't say anything about winning. But there's another way of looking at it. We don't say, you know, we've had police in this country for, for centuries and we still have crime. Isn't it time to give up on the police? We've had disease in this country for forever. We don't say it's time to get rid of doctors. They're not doing their job. We understand that there are problems that are chronic. You tamp them down. You manage them. You're not necessarily expecting your enemies to come in and hand over a sword and say, okay, now you have victory. Go home. Have a ticker tape parade. We may face endless wars, it seems to me. It's not our decision. It's our enemy's decision. If they have the will to continue, if they can come back after being beaten in many battles, if what they're doing is not waiting to win but waiting for us to quit, then we have a choice. We lose or we continue to fight. We continue to fight wars, endless wars, and we try to make these wars as manageable as we can. That's right. And, and you have to obviously recognize, again, this continuous interaction with your enemies. So progress in war is not linear. But what, what, we, what we, in terms of those who work in foreign policy, national security, the military, we owe the American people a, a sound strategy that allows the American people to see how the risks that we're asking young American men and women to take, the sacrifices we're asking them to make, the cost of that war, how that is contributing to an mm-hmm. outcome worthy of those risks, sacrifices, and costs. And we can do it. There are those who I think have now adopted almost a defeatist approach to any engagement overseas. And mm-hmm. I think I think some people who, who think this way have almost a mild streak through them of, I would call the new left interpretation of history, which is essentially a narcissistic view of the world. It blames us for all the problems. And therefore, it doesn't give any agency or control to our enemies who are fighting us. And so I think we have to have more of a focus on the other, develop some strategic empathy to, to understand the nature of the, of the conflict and to explain to the American people, again, what is that strategy? And I think we can do that much better than we have. In fact, I think you know, if the great captains of military history were to come back you know, and, and, and look at what we did in Iraq and Afghanistan, they would think we're crazy. And, and especially... You're thinking wars end when you leave. I mean, I'm reminded of, and this is with all due respect to Vice President Biden, when he called President Obama and said, thank you for allowing me to end this goddamn war, right? And what he what was the assumption that underpinned that phone conversation was wars will end when you leave. Well, what happened? What happened is we disengaged militarily, but we also from disengaged Iraq about from now, Iraq. Yeah. We also disengaged politically. Yeah. And so this Maliki government, which we had allowed to seize power illegally, 
because he was not the, the one who won the election, right? We allowed the Iranians to determine that it would be Maliki staying in power. Then he purged the Iraqi institutions, especially the military, from those who did not adhere to really kind of his Shia Islamist agenda. And as a result, you got a backlash from the Sunni Arab community. What I think people sometimes don't realize is these terrorist groups depend on communities who feel beleaguered Mm -hmm. and who then view those terrorist groups as patrons and protectors. Particularly after the Americans left and the Sunni of Iraq were not protected or defended by anyone, they had they had been depending on the U.S. on the U.S. Marines. That's right, and and in many ways we had become sort of mediators there. And if you remember, in 2010, there were weeks when there there was not a violent incident in in, in Iraq. And but what's critical is the consolidation of those gains. And I'll just I'll just offer two quick analogies. We we often think, okay, it's it's. It's impossible. There's this sort of defeatist attitude that our disengagement from these problems are an unmitigated good because I think this of this warped view of history or sometimes it's almost bigotry masquerading as cultural sensitivity. You know, mm-hmm. when they say, well, those people, they've been killing each other for centuries. Mm-hmm. What they, they don't realize are the possibilities associated with those who really want a better future for their children, who reje- reject these, 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 these violent uh, jihadi terrorists and, 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 uh, and their victimization of, of their people. And so they see all the difficulties, but not the, pos- not the possibilities. And, and I think two examples to keep in mind is Plan Columbia, right? I mean, in the late 1990s, everybody thought Columbia was on a path to state failure. Now, it's not a rose garden there, right? We know that we know that uh, we, we know that uh, the drug production is, is up, and there are problems associated with the, the deal with the FARC and so forth. But Colombia is a successful country. Take a look also at South Korea in 1953. Okay, at the end of that, you have now a country that's been ravaged by decades of war and brutal occupation, a, a country where there wasn't even a tree left in the country, no natural resources. Uh, an illiterate population and a corrupt government and a hostile neighbor, right? Who was going to bet on South Korea? Now look at that country. I mean, it's the fifth largest economy in Asia. It's tremendously successful. It's a, it's a free democratic society. It's a, it's a free market economy that's succeeding. And you know, it took a long time. It wasn't until reforms in the 80s when, when, when South Korea really took off. So again, I would say that if, if it's a sustainable level com- of commitment, we have to recognize there aren't short-term solutions to these problems. There's a difference between the non-interventionists or isolationists on the left and the right, but they do converge over policy at a certain point. They, 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 and they're an important constituency. On the right, they would say, yeah, you know, it's nice that Colombia is doing better, but why do I care? It's not my business. I don't want to see one American life or one American dollar put to that purpose. South Korea, okay, they make some nice cars, but that's also not worth our blood and treasure. Most of these places we should stay out of because we have no business there and we can't nation build there. And even if we do, it's it's not worth it. I, I think that's what our more libertarian friends are saying. Yeah. No, there is a point at which Republican isolationism meets democratic retrenchment, right? Uh-huh. And this is why we should we should work on these all these problems from a bipartisan perspective. On Colombia, I would say Look at what a great partner Colombia has become in the region. Colombia is under duress now because of these refugees coming out of the brutal Maduro regime who's destroying his country. If Colombia wasn't a strong partner with us, 
they wouldn't be able to provide that kind of humanitarian relief. Who would do it? Who would have to lead if Colombia wasn't wasn't leading in that connection? Colombia also has been a very strong diplomatic partner on isolating the Maduro regime. If you look at, at the Latin America, at the Western Hemisphere of the 70s, compare it to today, unbelievably effective partnerships with so many of those countries. So sustained partnership with the United States. I think the trust that many other partners have with us draw on our experience with Colombia as an example. The great relationship we have with Chile, with Argentina, with Brazil, uh, I mean, with Panama. I mean, this is largely unprecedented. You still have the outliers, you know, in Nicaragua to a certain extent in Ecuador, but that might be moving in a much better direction. Uh, and certainly, you know, in, in Cuba uh, and, Bol- and Bolivia. But but these are outliers Paraguay now. Is not so good either. Right? <laughs> but but th- these, these are outliers now. And who would have thought that that would have been possible before? In South Korea, you have this shining example of what can be achieved in a democratic society, in a free and open economy. It is the starkest example of the world, in the world, of the contrast between our free and open societies and a closed authoritarian system across that 38th parallel and the disaster that is, that is North Korea. And, and so South Korea has had tremendous, I think, psychological benefit to us as well as, as, well as important uh, in connection with China, who really would like to push the United States back to Hawaii and, and, uh, and, and has a problem doing that because countries in the region are rejecting you know, this, this relationship of a vassal state with China. They recognize that if you partner with the United States, the United States wants your country to succeed. Look at what's happened recently you know, in, in Malaysia, mm-hmm. uh, in, in, in Sri Lanka, mm-hmm. in the Maldives, where China has, has indebted these countries in a way that creates dependencies with projects of dubious value rife with corruption. And so I think there's a huge backlash now in the region that is going to redound to not just our benefit, but the benefit to those who share our principles. And this is Japan, Australia, India. And I do think that, that our competition with China, our competition with, 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 with others, is really a, a competition between freedomness, openness, and, and closed authoritarian systems. The Chinese president, probably for life, uh, Xi Jinping, is a man with a plan, of course. This was not recognized for a long time. At least it is recognized now. As you say, he's using a debt trap with the Belt and Road Initiative, a way to, to spread Chinese neocolonialism. I also think this this gets into the cyber domain. Uh, he thinks if we have to go to war with the U.S. over Taiwan or over the South China Sea, one possibility is to sink American vessels and shoot down American planes. But the other is if I if I have the cyber offensive capability I want, I can screw with their GPS. They won't be able to do anything at all. Their ships will be idle in the water. Their planes won't know where they're flying. Now, we have a cyber command. It's in Maryland at Fort Meade. But I'm not sure they are at the stage they need to be where they can tell the Chinese, you want to be careful how you mess with us. Because Beijing has stolen hundreds of billions of dollars of intellectual property. And not least, a lot of our defense secrets. No Chinese spy working in Washington could possibly have carried home as much libraries full. Am I wrong on that? No, that's, uh, you're absolutely right. So China's, China has been conducting a sustained campaign of industrial espionage against the United States for the theft of intellectual property and, 
and and technological capabilities uh, to to that they can apply to their economy under this is President Xi's Made in China 2025 initiative, uh, but also to their to their military. I mean, there's a reason why the J-20 fighter looks like an F-22, right? I mean, it wasn't wasn't, wasn't a coincidence, right? So we develop, we invest, they steal, and we say, well, what are you going to do about it? And and, and then also uh, industries, industries that go to China that have sophisticated technologies, engine technologies, automotive and aerospace capabilities, and and to gain access to the Chinese market, they have to enter into a joint venture with a Chinese company, which acts as an extension of the Chinese government. They have to also transfer all their intellectual property, which is just transferring to the Chinese Communist Party. And, and so it's the theft, but it's also the forced transfer of intellectual property. And this is what Ambassador Lighthizer is working on now uh, in, in, co- in connection with these trade talks. These trade talks have big implications that are security implications as well as economic implications. In terms of North Korea, our ability to prevent that terrible regime from developing nuclear weapons and the missiles that can deliver them, increasingly sophisticated missiles, it's been hampered by a number of things. One is the belief that diplomatic efforts could stop them. That's all that's necessary. And the fact that we've had in place various diplomatic agreements, the agreed framework that President Clinton concluded with help from people like Wendy Sherman, who also worked on the Iran deal, the JCPOA, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. It was a total failure, but it took people years to understand what a total failure it was. Also, the North Koreans hold Seoul hostage with very primitive conventional weapons north of the DMZ. Is it really impossible for the military to have a plan to wipe out those weapons, to to prevent them essentially um, from from being from being used to, to 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 bad effect, can we not do that? Well, regardless of what you do, any kind of war on the Korean Peninsula will be costly, terrible, and so forth. But there are a great deal of countermeasures to put in place, as well as offensive capabilities, as you mentioned. And and it's really the military's job to plan for the worst, right? right. And and so I think it's important to still do that with North Korea. Uh, because it's important to convince Kim Jong-un that he's actually less secure with nuclear weapons than he is without them. And it's very clear from the historical record, every incident of uh, of an offense uh, that, that has inflicted losses has originated from North Korea, not from South Korea. And as you already mentioned, South, uh, North Korea already has a deterrent capability with this large conventional artillery force. Why does he need a nuclear weapon? And I think we have to at least maybe be open to the possibility that he wants a nuclear weapon for the reason his father stated, to be, quote, a treasured sword, a treasured sword that would cleave the, the, the alliance between the United States and South Korea, drive the United States off the peninsula as the first act in what would then become an, an effort to unify the peninsula under the north, what they could say – as, as they say, under the red banner. We have to at least be open to that possibility. I think it is a good thing to pursue the, the, the presidential summits because we know, as you mentioned, the previous efforts failed. They failed. They failed in large measure, I think, because we separated what we were prepared to do militarily from what we're trying to do diplomatically. Those have to be integrated. Again, t- to convince Kim Jong-un, I mean, you're, you're, not, you're less safe with a nuclear weapon. To hold out an alternative future uh, to, to North Korea as, as well, but 
But those talks also cannot be bottom-up. There are too many spoilers, right? I mean, it's not going to happen bottom-up. The key is to, is to frame out an agreement that could, as, as you've already alluded to, it must be verifiable. And the other key dimension of this problem is not to allow the North to extort us, to extort South Korea, and to get concessions and economic payoffs and direct payoffs just in return for entering into negotiations, during which they string out those negotiations mm-hmm. historically. And then those negotiations result in a weak agreement that locks in the status quo as the new normal, which in this case would be a very well-advanced nuclear program and a very well-advanced missile program. And then they break the agreement you know, and just go on with the program uh, or continue the program in, in violation of the agreement. So I think that those who are working on this problem are very much aware of the failed pattern of past efforts. And it's going to be immensely important for the United States and others to recognize. And I hope, I mean, I I would hope, who knows, that China would recognize that it is in their interest to do everything that China can to resolve this. And the reason is, it's not just a direct threat from a North Korean nuclear weapon, which is a threat to China as well. But it's also the threat to the breakdown in the nonproliferation regime in Northeast Asia and beyond, right? How long is it before other countries get nuclear weapons? And, and the, the other aspect of this problem is North Korea has never met a weapon it didn't try to sell to somebody. And so you also have the possibility of nuclear weapons going to states. And actually, it's not a possibility. In fact, they were already developing Syria's nuclear program until the Israeli Air Force destroyed that, that reactor. And, and so uh, this is a high stakes problem. And, and I think that we have to give you know, all of our support that we can to those who are grappling with it. And, and do everything we can, especially not to repeat the same failed patterns of the past. It was, it was always humorous to me uh, when I was in the, in the National Security Advisor job. When we were implementing the strategy of, of maximum pressure, the criticisms would come f- from people who were saying, hey, how come you're not replicating the fa- our failed efforts? Well, we can't do that. We can't afford to do it because, of course, it, it's a much more dangerous situation now. And we don't have the ability uh, to, to continue a strategy of strategic patience. A couple of questions about Syria I want to pose to you. Late last year, the president, I think rather suddenly, rather abruptly, said, I'm going to pull all our troops out of Syria. We had only about 2,000 special forces backed up by combat aircraft, and they were doing a heck of a job in terms of both decimating and uprooting the Islamic State and helping to contain the Islamic Republic of Iran. You know what happened as a result. General Mattis resigned as Secretary of Defense. In recent days, it looks like President Trump has changed his mind. He said 400 troops would stay there. And with Senator Lindsey Graham and others working on this, it appears the Europeans are going to make a much more substantial contribution to this effort, as indeed I think they should. And if Trump accomplishes that, if he actually manages to keep some American presence there, but with a more serious European presence to do the same job, that's good economy of force. And then a good example of the, of the sheriff and the posse working together rather than the cop on the beat trying to do it himself. Right. That's right. I, I think a sustained commitment there is immensely important because as we already know, right, I mean, under the Obama administration, there was an assumption that maybe this could be contained. Well, it wasn't contained. Half the Syrian population is dead, wounded, or displaced. It is a humanitarian catastrophe of colossal scale. Think about the opportunities that existed earlier to maybe address this problem in a more direct way or within the region. Think that would have cost 
not just pennies on the dollar in terms of cost to Europe associated with mm. the refugee crisis and the neighboring countries like uh, you know, Jordan is under, under tremendous uh, duress uh, in, in particular um, from the refugee crisis, but it, and Turkey as well, but but also the 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 amount of loss and human suffering you know that that we that we could have prevented. The key, though, now is also to address the political catastrophe that has essentially empowered Iran across the region. And what Iran is trying to do, I believe, is keep the Arab world perpetually weak so it can apply a Hezbollah model to the greater Mm -hmm. Middle East and to the Arab world in which they have a weak government in place that is dependent on Iran for support while they create militias and other armed groups that are outside of that government's control and can be turned against that government if that government acts against Iranian interests. Mm-hmm. You see that this is what they've achieved in large measure in mm-hmm. Syria. It's Lebanon. what they're trying to do in Iraq. It's what they already have in Lebanon. It's what they're trying to do through the support for the Houthis in Yemen yeah. as well. Mm-hmm. And so what, what Iran is trying to do as well is place a proxy army on the border of Israel. And so we, we have to do something about this. Remaining in the northeastern part of Syria gives the United States and our partners some significant leverage. That just so happens to be the place where there is over 50% of Syria's oil reserves. That's why the Russians attacked with mercenaries, if you recall, mm-hmm. in February, I think, of 2018, and is, is they wanted to gain control of the Conoco facility to pay for the reconstruction of Syria under Assad, which is going to be hundreds of billions of dollars. We shouldn't write a check for $1. Nobody should, the European Union, anybody. And it's the combination of that control of territory as well as the the money needed for reconstruction that gives us and like-minded countries some significant leverage uh, to, to and, and to disrupt really you know, Iran's designs, which, by the way, will also perpetuate the transnational terrorist problem because the Sunni Arab communities, they see themselves as beleaguered. Uh, by these militias. And so they will look to the next ISIS, right, to be patrons and protectors. So to have an enduring defeat of ISIS and other groups, to be able to stabilize that situation, address the humanitarian catastrophe, limit Iran's influence, we, we need we need to exert our influence there as well as like my, alongside like, like-minded partners. Just a few more topics that I want to touch on. One is NATO, and I'll make people on both sides of this argument angry by saying the following, NATO is a very valuable military alliance. The members of NATO, militarily, they're not so valuable. And that's the problem. After the U.S., the largest military force in NATO is Turkey, not a reliable partner for anything I can imagine. And of the other members of NATO, how many of them could really say, if Russia attacks Estonia next week, say, okay, we're ready to respond? Very few, I think. Well, I think a growing number is what I would say. And and there has been a recognition that this holiday from history we took at the end of the Cold War, you know, we, we were slow to wake up to that. Yeah. I mean, if, if you didn't wake up when Russia connect, con- conducted the denial of service attacks on Estonia mm-hmm. in 2007, and you didn't wake up in 2008 with the attack into Georgia, and you didn't wake up when the reset button didn't work in Geneva with, with Secretary Clinton bringing it to Lavrov, I mean – so come on. I mean, after that is when we were withdrawing, continue to withdraw forces from Europe, and NATO was getting weaker and weaker. I think 
all of us have woken up to this threat now. And what you see are more and more countries meeting the goal in the Wales Conference of 2% of their GDP toward defense. But what we need is some of the bigger countries to do that. And in particular, I would say Germany really is, is having a bit of a crisis of, of generating will. And this is a crisis that is cultivated in large measure by the Russians, who are all too happy to support uh, parties on the polar extremes and to see the German polity fragment. And this is why you have the, the rise of AFD, you have the rise of leftist parties. And Russia is happy to see a strain of American anti-Americanism through this. But I think we have to recognize that it's always been Germany as a critical anchor to the transatlantic alliance and to NATO. And there are some indications that at least you know, the, the, the CDU uh, the, the, is, is willing to take on uh, more defense uh, responsibility. But also important, I think, is, is this Nord Stream 2 uh, yes. pi- pipeline uh, that, will, that will not only cultivate dependence in Germany – on Russian supplies, but also cut off Ukraine at a time when Ukraine needs those transit fees. So this is a geostrategic win for Russia. I think just in general, we have to bolster our collective will to protect our free and open societies together. Two more questions. One about the U.S. military, the Army in particular. Recruitment is a problem in terms of the geographic areas that we recruit from nowadays. They're very limited. And there's a limited number of socioeconomic groups that are providing volunteers. I mean, my view, and I think yours, is all Americans should understand the interest that we have in a strong military and contributing to it with tax dollars, but in other ways as well. I think this is an immensely important point. We have to – our military has to be connected to those in whose name they fight and serve, the American people. And if I have one message to try to get out here is that there are tremendous – rewards associated with service. So I would ask any young men and women here, go to your recruiting office, look for opportunities for commissioned or enlisted service in our armed forces. You know, I'll tell you, popular media and Hollywood, I think it cheapens and coarsens military service and our warrior ethos. And oftentimes you see veterans portrayed, you know, as traumatized, fragile human beings, when in fact, veterans are proud of their service. And even the most harrowing experiences are oftentimes strengthening to an individual. And it's our veterans who then go off to do other things in their lives and are tremendously successful as citizens in other walks of life. Now, I believe that there is a large untapped desire to serve among young men and women. And you can serve in the reserves that's compatible with a civilian uh, a civilian um, vocation as well. And, and, and I'll tell you, what you don't see are the less tangible re- rewards. Okay, there are, there are challenges and difficulties associated with separation, a long time away from your family, living sometimes in arduous uh, conditions, uh, seeing the, the, the most difficult experiences of uh, men and women next to you making sacrifices uh, and being wounded or killed in combat. But what you don't see is you don't see being part of something bigger than yourself and where you can make a difference in real people's lives. I mean, American warriors are warriors, but they're also humanitarians. I mean, these are the people who are, who are protecting all civilized people mm. by, 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 from these modern-day barbarians. And you're also part of, of a team 
that grows together like a family. Nobody cares what color anybody is. Nobody cares what gender anybody is. Nobody cares where they came from, what their religious beliefs are. All they care about is, you know, is the, that bond of mutual trust and mutual respect that develops because they have a common purpose together. And there's an ethos of sacrifice you don't find in other places. Where else do you find it where the man or woman next to you is willing to give everything, including their own lives for you? And and, and to be part of that is, is a tremendously rewarding experience. Right. Final question. Now, as chairman of this new military center we have here at FDD, it's not going to be easy for you to determine what issues we're going to tackle and spend time and money and attention on and which ones we're going to leave alone. How, how do you approach that problem? Well, I, I think it's, it's important to, to talk about really what are, what are the range, the types of, of threats to, uh, to national and international security. And I tend to think of them, and these are not original, but they, they've been in our thinking now for about a decade. You know, you have the problem of geostrategic competition with nation states. You have the problem of transnational threats that takes a, a different kind of range of capabilities and different way of combining those capabilities. Then you also have the hostile states problem. But then I think what also is important to highlight are threats to our security that are now that are now uh, apparent in new domains, cyberspace and space, but then also new arenas of competition, sort of like the battleground of perception and how we've seen the Russians use cyber enabled information warfare against us in a way to really try to affect a crisis in our identity and who we are. And this is why I think the work of FDD is more important now than ever, because FDD has been a place where you can go to for policy-relevant research on each of these key areas, these new domains, the hostile, th- the hostile states, the transnational threats, and, and, uh, and the problems that associate it with geostrategic competition with great powers. I just want to take one second to thank you for your service in uniform, for your service out of uniform, and what you're doing now and what you will be doing, I hope, for many, many years to come. We're thrilled to have your guidance here at FDD, and we'll have you on this podcast anytime you're around and want to talk. So thank you so much. Thanks, Cliff. It's been a pleasure to be here. Thank you. And thanks to all of you. You've been listening to Foreign Policy. for listening to Foreign Policy. If you found the program worthwhile, we suggest you subscribe to Foreign Policy on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you prefer to listen to your podcasts. If we could be doing better, tell us. Send us your feedback, your questions, your ideas to foreignpolicy at fdd.org. You can also tweet us at Foreign Policy on Twitter. For more information about this episode and others and about our distinguished guests, visit us online at fdd.org. Until next time, I'm Cliff May, and you've been listening to Foreign Policy.